Welcome back, everybody! To Mysteries, Murders, Monsters, Monsters and, and your us. mom. Your moms. Your moms. Maybe your moms are back. Maybe not your mom, per se. Yeah. That's awkward. That is a little awkward. We're kind of <laughs> like everyone's mom. <laughs> at least on here. <laughs> so, thanks for everybody who's listened again and has liked and subscribed to our podcast. Uh, this is episode four. Yeah. We made it to episode freaking four. We're pretty excited about that. That's awesome. Yes, it's been a lot of fun. We've had awesome feedback from friends, family, strangers even, so it's pretty exciting, and we are always looking for more feedback, so like us on social media, follow us, uh, give us reviews, all the good stuff. Do all the things, please. Yes, please. All the things. Um... I was going to say something in my brain. Oh, next week we don't have an episode because it's my turn to go on vacation. So this episode might be a tidbit longer than the last ones. So savor it. Maybe (laughs) break it up in half and listen to half now, half later. Or don't. Just listen to it twice. I don't know. But we'll be back after that. And I don't think we're going anywhere for a while. So we should be able to get you your content on a regular basis. Anyway, we're going to do a quick sponsor ad thing. You know, that thing. Hey, fellow moms and listeners. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Well, Nicole and I are here to tell you how. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make pod- to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Okay, so welcome back. Um, This week I'm going to do a conspiracy. And I honestly don't know how I chose it. I wasn't even thinking about it or looking at it. And somehow it came on my radar. And once I started looking into it, I went down this flipping rabbit hole. And I found a ton of stuff about it. That's how all good mysteries start, right? right? (laughs) I just, I realized, like, oh my god, I think two hours have gone by. And all I've been doing is reading and watching and listening to interviews and so that's how that happened and then after I decided to do this I realized when I was out in public I just kind of started seeing this person's face everywhere I'm like was this like this before or is it just because I'm gonna do this story and now I'm a little more in tune to it I have no idea but um I'm gonna do the conspiracy behind Marilyn Monroe's death Oh, very cool. I know. See, it's been done, and I know it has. But, no, that's okay, though. But, like, I was telling um, Nicole while we were, like, in between stuff that when I was researching this, within the last week, there has been uh, new stuff that has come out, and the new stuff that comes out is honestly, in my opinion, what I think what I think happened. And I know there's a lot of people that will dispute it and say, this isn't how it happened, that she just, you know, Killed herself, blah, blah, blah. All right, so 
I'm going to go through all the basics that everybody kind of already knows as fast as I can because the story might be a little bit long and then we're going to get into the conspiracy stuff and then the new story that's coming out that I think is the truth. Okay, so as everybody knows, Marilyn Monroe is an American icon. In the true sense and not in the current overused form of the word that everyone uses today like, oh, that's iconic. That's so iconic. And really, you're going to forget this shit in five years. That is not what iconic means, so please stop overusing it. <laughs> so, I concur. Yeah. <laughs> so she's also known as a classic Hollywood blonde bombshell. Um, and I don't think there's a human alive that doesn't know her name and face. And if you don't, by some chance, my God, crawl out of that rock you've been living under. Um, so with it, people also know of her death and some may even know that there are conspiracies regarding how she died. So Marilyn's, um, cause of death that was listed on her death certificate was quote unquote, probable suicide. How is it probably suicide? Like, I think it's suicide, <laughs> but I can't tell. Like, I'm surprised it wasn't undetermined. Yeah. Usually they do something like undetermined when you don't know for sure. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch to that too. Yeah. We'll get there. So um, like I already stated, I don't believe that this is what happened. So just a real quick synopsis of her life of uh, Norma Jean slash Marilyn Monroe. So the icon that we know today as Marilyn Monroe was born Norma Jean Morrison in 1926. She was born to Gladys Pearl Baker and her father's identity is unknown. So due to mental... Um, instabilities and financial instabilities, Gladys placed Norma with a foster family. At one point, her mother was able to buy a small home uh, and brought Norma home with her, but after a short time period, she suffered a mental breakdown and was placed in a state hospital and diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And I actually listened to an audio interview with Marilyn Monroe where she kind of goes through this, her timeline through her life, and she says that she never really lived with her mother and she never really knew her mother mm -hmm. she always called her mom the woman with the red hair and she remembers this house vaguely but it she was so young and it was such like a quick blip on her radar that um she doesn't really remember it so um norma then became a state of the ward and was living with a family friend and was in and out of foster homes and during this time uh, norma was sexually abused and molested several times um, at 16, Norma married a 21-year-old named James, James Bordy in order to not be sent back to foster care. And these two barely knew each other. Like, mm -hmm. they went on a date, basically, and were kind of hanging out. Um, but she, the, the family that she was living with was moving out of state, and they couldn't take her out of state, so she was going to end up back in a foster care. Yeah, home. didn't so, want to start over again. Right, so rather than doing that, they, um, they got married. So in the two, he was eventually uh, deployed with the Marines, and in the two years he was gone, Norma had gotten a job, and here is where she was discovered, and thus the birth of Marilyn Monroe. Um, she divorced James in 1946 in order to further pursue her career, and how she got to being uh, Norma Jean Morrison slash Baker, because she went back and forth between mm -hmm. the two last names. Yeah. Um, and then how she became Marilyn Monroe. There's a whole story to that, but for you know the sake of time, I'm gonna skip it. Yeah. But on look the, it up. Yeah, just look it up. It's, <laughs> it's all there, people. And on the evening of August 4th, 1962, Marilyn was found dead in her home. She was lying in her bed, naked, holding the phone, and there were pills all over the floor. 
Now, there are a slew of people who were involved in Marilyn's life around the time of her death, and things were getting really sticky. We've got mafia, presidents, general secretaries, psychiatrists, and the list goes on. So I'm going to run through the players, quote unquote, really quickly. So when I refer to them again later, maybe hopefully you'll remember them. So most notably is her housekeeper, Eunice Murray, who was referred to her by her psychiatrist, who was Dr. Ralph Greenson. And he was her psychiatrist as said, and also I call him the injector of sedatives because he mm -hmm. was giving her a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, Pat Newcomb, who was her publicist, her supposed friend, and also a friend of the Kennedy family. Peter Lawford, who was an actor, a friend, and he was also married to a Kennedy. You're seeing a pattern here. <laughs> uh, yeah, the name Kennedy keeps popping yeah. up. So, and then there's Dr. Hyman Engelberg, who is also a doctor, an associate of Dr. Greenson, and also an injector of sedatives. Milton Rudin, who was her attorney, and then Norman Jeffries, which was her handyman and Eunice Murray's son-in-law. Okay. So there's like a small group of people and they're all kind of entwined together. So here's a story that has been told for decades about what happened the night of her death. So it is noted that on August 3rd, Marilyn was very upset and she had placed many phone calls to many different people. And one of those was Peter Lawford, who states that um, he was in contact with her and even invited her to a party at his house. But she responded, say goodbye to Pat, say goodbye to the president, and say goodbye to yourself because you're a nice guy. And he says that this is where she kind of drifted off. So from here, he tried, he was concerned. He tried to call Dr. Greenson, who did not answer, and then her lawyer. And then her lawyer called Eunice, the housekeeper, but she stated that Marilyn was fine. So here's where the story also changes. This, this story changes a whole bunch. But from here, Eunice states that she got up around 3.30 in the morning, but she originally told the first set of uh, policemen that she talked to that it was 12.30 because she had a quote-unquote feeling and was concerned and noticed that the bedroom door was locked, but the phone cord was under the door and the light was on. So she called Dr. Greenson, who came over and, uh, well, first he advised her to go outside and look in the window, and she saw Marilyn laying naked and face down in her bed. So then Dr. Greenson came over, he broke the window, was able to get in, and they state that she was already dead. Um, he called Dr. Hyman, who arrived just before 4 a.m., and then the police were called. So once Marilyn um, had made it to the coroner's office, um, the mortuary had been called first, actually. So she was the mortuary, and then the coroner finally got a hold of her. So rather than the chief medical officer doing the autopsy, they had a newbie who whose name comes up again because there's a lot of celebrities um, who he's done autopsies on. Um, mm. and, and now I'm, like, blanking on the girl's name. Who was Natalie... Natalie Wood. Yes, he did her autopsy too. So uh, Dr. Thomas Noguchi performed it. And mind you, he's a noob. Why is a noob doing this? Okay, so anyway, toxicology reports showed that the cause of death uh, to be acute barbiturate poisoning. And everybody knows and is aware that uh, Marilyn Monroe was a bit of an alcoholic and a bit of a pill popper. Mm -hmm. But there are lots of people who have seen her, you know, popping pills, drinking some vodka, and... One person noted, you know, Marilyn, this is going to kill you one day. And she just kind of like laughed and popped in the pill and took another swig. And she's like, well, they haven't yet. Right. So anyway, um, 
she had eight milligrams of chloral hydrate and 4.5 milligrams of phenobarbital and 13 milligrams of phenobarbital in her liver, which I guess are maybe the same thing. And I wrote that down wrong. Either way, she had a shit ton of stuff in her liver. Um, due to this finding, it was ruled that Marilyn could not have killed herself because the levels were several times over the lethal limit. So there's no way that she could have ingested this much and on kept her own. ingesting it. Yeah. Right. So from here, there was a small investigation from the LA coroner's office and the LA suicide prevention team. Her doctors went on record stating that she was prone to severe, uh, severe fears and frequent depression with abrupt and unpredictable mood changes. Um, so because of these statements and the lack of any uh, indication of foul play, the deputy coroner, Thomas Noguchi, classified her death as probable suicide. On August 8th, there was a funeral with only close friends and family invited, and she was buried in Crypt 24 at the Corridor of Memories. Um, this funeral and all of its arrangements were planned and funded by her um, ex-husband and also possible fiancé at the time, Joe DiMaggio, who was also the only person to come forward to claim her body so any of the stuff could be done. Like he oh, was yeah. Literally the only person there right. for her at the end. So this timeline of events is what has been told and presented as truth um, since 1962, which is over 50 years. So let's get into some the good stuff, the conspiracies. All right, conspiracy time. It was well known that around the time of her death that Marilyn was having an affair with both John F. Kennedy, the president at the time, and his brother, Robert Kennedy, who was the general secretary at the time. Uh, although this has been disputed many a times, people say that that is false, that's not actually happening. I, however, I disagree. Like, I think she was. Like, whatever. That's my thought, and that's how I feel. <laughs> um, okay, so earlier she had been cut off from JFK, but ha uh, she actually continued an affair with Robert. And his alibi at the time of her death was that he was in San Francisco with his family at the estate of a friend and was there the whole time. We will come back to this. Um, it was rumored that Marilyn had kept a diary. Within it, she had written down details of her affair with both Kennedy, uh, both Kennedy brothers, plus the secrets that they had told her regarding national security, which, um, like, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis hadn't actually happened yet she knew details about that stuff about you know possibly assassinating fidel castro all of that stuff she knew about so uh, all of this kind of you know made her a target um she had a wide range of friends which included mom bosses and members of the communist party whether she was blissfully unaware of that or maybe just didn't care it's also I, pretty common at that time too so yeah you know so i i don't know um so many of these individuals were also under the uh, surveillance of the cia uh and there are confirmed recordings with Marilyn in which she's telling sensitive information which again makes her a huge liability so during this time was also the infamous happy birthday song to the president. 
Um, at the same time, J. Edgar Hoover was serving as the first director of the FBI and had a closed-door meeting with JFK, and it's presumed that he spoke to him about his current affairs, which he was having several of at the time, but Maryland, I think, was the biggest issue. So Maryland being one of them, um, it was said here JFK kind of cut her off, and he stopped answering her calls. And Peter Lawford, who I mentioned in the beginning, uh, he was married to the president's sister, and he was made to make the call to Maryland, 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 not the state, <laughs> Maryland, the not person, the state, the person, which he did. So uh, anyway, this didn't deter Maryland from trying to contact JFK, and she even started calling the White House uh, without using a code name. She was just like, "Yo, bitch, this is Marilyn Monroe, and I want to speak to the president." You know. <laughs> Because this is how they spoke in the 50s. <laughs> Obviously. So there is a story uh, that states uh, Marilyn wanted to come clean to Jackie O, you know, Jackie mm-hmm. Kennedy, um, and tell her the truth about the affair and uh, his promise oh, of marriage. Jackie, Jackie knew. Yeah, she <laughs> Jackie knew. knew. And, like, what a good, like, she was such a good woman because her response to Marilyn and then her response to her husband thereafter she like most women would be furious and she just kind of like dealt with it and was like here we go so um in the biography about jackie um her response to marilyn was marilyn you'll marry jack that's great and you'll move into the white house and you'll assume the responsibilities of the first lady and i'll move out and you'll have all the problems and then it was later said that um she just kind of told John, you know, out of all the women that he was sleeping with, not John, Jack. No, yeah, whatever. Why do people got to change their names? Um, <laughs> and uh, that she was like, you know, be careful with this one. You know, she's kind of, you know, she's a little bit lost, you know. Well, she's to- looking for, an, you know, she had a lot of marriages and she was with a lot of people because she was looking for a father figure her whole life. It's obvious, you know. Oh, and man. what better father figure than, you know, the King of Camelot, basically. Like, <laughs> right. you know. And, like, in the, like, 50s and 60s, he was, I don't know, the bee's knees, to use a term from their, that era. He was a handsome man. He was rich. He was well-educated. He was powerful. He was all, he was, like, the male's male. Yeah. He's the Henry Cavill of the <laughs> <laughs> forget <laughs> so by the way we forgot to say what we were drinking because oh. i'm drinking jack daniel's out of a can again <laughs> i am drinking victory's liberty bell ringer because i'm getting ready to head to philadelphia in a couple of days and what a perfect drink to be drinking during you know one of the biggest pro-america times in history i guess all right so okay Jackie was concerned that, you know, his uh, affair with uh, Marilyn would ruin his reputation and also destroy their marriage and would also hold her to public ridicule, which, you know, fair. Um, All right. So during a party at Peter Lawford's, uh, both Marilyn and Robert were present, and it's said that he was there to get her to stop calling the president, and instead it turned into an affair. Because hey. this is how things happened back then. You're like, well, why you're not? If I can't fuck your 
brother, I'll fuck you instead. Can Zoe hear me? <laughs> okay, no, children are out of range. I promise to our listeners that the children are out of range. I can't promise that my daughter has never heard that, though. I know my children have frequently. Okay, so... Um, so they started having an affair. This went on for several months until July, which is the month before she was found dead. He has a closed-door meeting with Mr. Hoover, um, and he immediately cuts off communication with her as well. So this really pisses her off, and she starts trying to contact Robert and even tries to contact him at his house. And this guy is married. He's got, like, five or six kids. Mm -hmm. He's even nominated as, like, Father of the Year Award. Little do they know. Um, So in late July, Marilyn met with a friend, uh, and she showed him her diary. So this is all supposedly. Right, right. Which had secrets that I mentioned that connected the Kennedys to the Mafia and the head of the Mafia, whose name is Sam uh, Giacana, I'm assuming, Mm -hmm. um, and that she was angry at both of the brothers and that she was going to hold a press conference and he was, like, begging her, like, don't do this. Mm -hmm. So at some point in in late July, Marilyn does state that she's going to hold a press conference, which we're going to come back to. It's not stated exactly what it's for, but it definitely gets some attention. So, some of the conspiracy theories. It's suggested that Marilyn was given an enema of drugs, which killed her. And other states that she was given a quote-unquote hot shot of drugs in an attempt to keep her quiet. Meaning, like, they gave her a full syringe right. of a bunch of shit that killed her. And then there are suggestions that it was the mob. Others say that it was the Kennedys. Maybe it was both. Others say that maybe it was her psychiatrist. Because at the time of her death, Marilyn literally was cleaning house. She was getting rid of everybody. All the right. people that I named, like, initially were all being fired. Yeah. So, um... It was well known that Robert Kennedy was working and focusing on eradicating organized crime in the U.S. and targeted mob bosses, but some of them, I think, were actually on the payroll. So let's talk about the last weekend of Marilyn being alive. So she was contacted by her friend Frank Sinatra and invited to his club slash casino called Cal Neva, Paul Neva, however you pronounce that shit. Um... And it's well known that Sinatra was heavily tied into the affairs with the mob because the guy who co-owned this club casino with him was the head of, he was a mob boss. So obviously he's tied into some shit. So it's said that he invited her to discuss their upcoming movie together and after much reluctance, she finally agreed. Everything that happens next is secondhand details. By the way, if you hear in the background, that's just Brody. He's just getting up, making himself comfortable. Sorry, he's an old man. Oh, man. We love pets here, too. (laughs) So, it said that uh, Marilyn was lured there basically to threaten her, to get her not to talk about the Kennedys, and to keep her mouth shut. So, what transpired is that Marilyn is fed copious amounts of alcohol and pills. Uh, She's then sexually assaulted by this mob boss, Sam Giacana. And then, also, there were others that followed suit. Um, there were photos taken of these happenings, and they were later confirmed by photographer Bobby Woodfield, who was actually a photographer on the set of uh, Marilyn's movies. Um, that he saw them while they were being developed and told Sinatra to burn them. 
This was all an attempt to blackmail her. And Marilyn did write um, in her diary a brief summary of that weekend. And we will come back to this. So the night of Marilyn's death, neighbors noted hearing strange sounds coming from her residence, like shouting, glass breaking, and even the sounds of a helicopter overhead. One report states that they heard a woman screaming, uh, murderers, you murderers, are you satisfied now that she's dead? And then Sergeant Jack Lemons, who was the first officer on the scene, states the original story told to him by the housekeeper that she found Marilyn around 12.30 in the morning and then questioned why they waited until 4.30 to call the police. He also notes that when he initially went into the room where Marilyn was laying, there was no drinking glass anywhere in the room. So even though she supposedly swallowed massive amounts of pills, there was no water glass. So how did this woman swallow right. these pills? I've heard that before. And then um, supposedly uh, when he came back or in the crime scene photos, there's a water glass place. So somebody put one there and then yeah. put it back. Um, and then it was also noted that the adjoining bathroom water had been shut off for future renovations. So there wasn't even running water in that room at the time. Um, also, the housekeeper said that she got up to use the bathroom, but she had a bathroom in her room. So that part of that doesn't make sense. And then Fred Otosh, who was a hired, I call him a bugger. I don't know what else to call him. That he was hired to bug uh, Marilyn's home. And he states that he has on tape Marilyn yelling, I feel used. I feel passed around. I'm being treated like a piece of meat. And this was on August 4th um, and states that Marilyn is talking to Bobby Kennedy, who was continuously yelling at her, where the fuck is it? And Fred Otosh was uh, the guy to hire if mm -hmm. you wanted to bug somebody's homes. And like right. Peter Lawford's house, because he was connected to the Kennedys, his house was bugged. So... That's kind of the evidence that Marilyn was having an affair with both of the Kennedys because she met at Peter Lawford's house quite frequently. Right. So the autopsy. Let's go to that. Um, so like I said, the mortuary had been called to pick up Marilyn's body first and not the coroner, which is a huge red flag. So they reached the body just in time as it was about to be embalmed. So the physical exam showed no signs of puncture marks, which, okay, possibly hard to see a puncture mark, like post-mortem, post, post I almost said postpartum, um, because it's known that Marilyn's psychiatrist had been giving her injections leading up to the day of her death. So she had them. It's not like she Some. didn't have them. Right. And then there's dual lividity, which was also noted. And this is where the blood pools in the lowest parts of the body after death. But when there is dual lividity, it indicates that the body has been moved post-mortem. Mm -hmm. So the physical exam also noted several bruises on her body, such as her arms, her left hip, and her lower back, which indicates that there was some sort of uh, violence, trauma, something. Something right. happened to her. Yeah, more than just, you know, an overdose. Right on her soft bed right yeah <laughs> so when her internal organs were examined the coroner noted that her stomach was completely empty nothing in it nothing so her publicist had been with her that whole day and she made up a story where she says that although they got into an argument that morning um the housekeeper had made them burgers and they ate burgers for lunch which is not true because Marilyn's right. stomach was completely empty and then the housekeeper Eunice said the whole said the whole time Marilyn didn't eat anything all day like she didn't right. eat any food 
And then her, like, and then this autopsy kind of corroborates that. And not only that, but there's no pill residue. Like, there's, there's nothing in her stomach. So, anyway. There was also nothing in her duodenum, which is the first tract of your intestine that attaches to your stomach and, you know, starts the whole, helps with the process. Anyway, Marilyn's blood, as we know, was tested for drugs, but the other organs, such as the kidney, stomach, the urine, and the intestines, had all been saved for further to toxicological exams. And then on August 6th, all of those organs disappeared. Of course they did. So although they were under the quote-unquote watchful eye of a second coroner, they just vanished. Mm -hmm. And never in the history of the L.A. coroner's office has any samples of anything ever gone missing. Except for this one time. <laughs> so then there's the location of Bobby Kennedy. So the alibi was that he was staying on a ranch with a friend in San Francisco. Excuse me, I had a burp. Sorry, everybody. That's so rude. But there are several members of the police force and witnesses that state otherwise, and one of them being the housekeeper, Miss Murray. Hmm. Although for years and years she stuck to the previous story, uh, during an interview shortly before her death, um, while she was off camera, she, start, she started saying to the interviewer, why at my age do I still have to cover this thing up? So then they, you know, kind of inquired her a little bit more. Well, what do you mean? And then she continued to note that on August 4th, Bobby Kennedy had come to see Marilyn that afternoon. And she notes that things got sticky and others had to intervene on Bobby's behalf. Marilyn's neighbor also noted that while in her backyard, she saw Bobby and two other men. Because the house where Marilyn was living at the time, there's other houses very kind of close to it. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually a really nice house. Um... Marilyn, let's see, shortly after, before midnight, a dark Mercedes was speeding east, and Officer Lynn Franklin notes uh, that it was going over 55 miles per hour. The speed limit there is only 35, so he pulls the car over. He recognizes the driver as Peter Lawford, and then he flashes a flashlight into the back seat and notices Bobby Kennedy. Mm -hmm. So he told them that uh, uh, Lawson said he's rushing the attorney general on urgent business. So then he apologizes, waves them on, and just reminds them, hey, the speed limit here is only 35. So then there's the phone records. Uh, one reporter on the day that Marilyn was reported to have died went to the phone company to obtain phone records to see who she had been calling, but they were gone. It was explained that some very official looking men had ordered the records to be given to them, and that's that. And mm -hmm. we know that Marilyn supposedly made a ton of calls the day that she died. Some very official looking G-men. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> men in black. Okay, so here's a story that I think actually happened. And this is the newer stuff. This came, you know, online um, about a week ago as I was looking for this. And I was honestly just Googling names with Marilyn Monroe. And it wasn't until... I uh, Googled Bobby Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe that this article came up, and at the time it was only five days old. Cool. All right, so, like I said, I believe that this is what happened. Um, so, the, and then another weird thing is that the people who were present that day, night, the last days and night that Marilyn was alive, um, like odd things happened to them. Like, Pat was immediately flown out of the country. Um, Eunice Murray and Norman Jeffers state that when Kennedy showed up, they had been asked to leave the house until Kennedy was gone. And then there was another lady who also had been flown out of the country. So all of these people. Right. Um, anyway. So 
Mike Rothmiller was an L.A. policeman who um, has decided that he's going to tell what he knows. Um, he has stayed quiet for decades, fearing for his life. Um, he thinks that the senior police officers from that era, um, if they were still alive, they would threaten him and his family, and they actually were. So 40 years on, um, he is still nervous about revealing all of this, uh, but now with the blessing of his wife Nancy, he's decided to let everybody know what it is that he's found. So on a hot night in August 1982, just weeks, he says, after Lawford, Peter Lawford told him everything that happened, he was uh, the he was the target of a mob-style assassination. A gunman on a motorcycle pulled up alongside his car and opened fire with a semi-automatic pistol. Um, Rothmer was hit in the back and the side and suffered spine damage, and he barely survived. So four years earlier... Um, four years earlier. I don't think he was really four years. Anyway, he was 27, and he was the youngest detective on in the city's Organized Crime Intelligence Division, or the OCID. He had six years' experience on the force. He was assigned to desk duties in the department's information trove, nicknamed Fort Davis, which was a bomb-proof labyrinth full of filing cabinets, and it was in a downtown building and had no windows. So there were tens of thousands of files, um, rumors, facts, uh, just all sorts of things about everybody from crime bosses, politicians, rock stars, actors, blah, blah, blah. You name it, and it was there. So, anyway, their sole job was to collect potentially embarrassing intelligence that might later be used as leverage in criminal investigations. So intrigued, Roth Miller began to browse the files of famous names. He discovered a file, he discovered the filing code system, and he opened to K. And he plucked out Jack Kennedy's folder, and then he saw cross, it was cross-referenced with Maryland's files as well as many others. So there were like 40 to 50 like linked cards um, that were like connecting Jack Kennedy with all these other people. Mm -hmm. So um, there were lots of marked CF, which meant confidential files, so officially these papers didn't exist. Um, and where they are today, he doesn't know because the OCID merged with the LA Police Division in 1997 and then Fort Davis was replaced. So although he couldn't make photocopies, he kind of wrote down everything that he saw, kept notes, and um, he found a document mark, marked Marilyn Monroe's diary. So its existence, you know, has long been rumored in Maryland. Maryland, I did it again. I don't know why he called her Maryland. <laughs> so anyway, Marilyn Monroe um you know had this diary but everyone thought that it was just fiction that it never really existed because nobody has ever seen it um so the lapd had a copy and probably the original too but he noted that on august 3rd 1962 the day before she died marilyn wrote peter and robert will come tomorrow i don't know if he will so leaping through the pages he saw that Marilyn had regarded bobby kennedy as something much more than a casual boyfriend even though he was married with children um she appeared that you know he was prepared that she was prepared to be his wife and that he was going to leave his wife and they were going to get married supposedly which totally contradicts the whole joe dimaggio saying that they were engaged to be remarried and she had even purchased her wedding dress for their upcoming nuptials which were supposed to happen like two days after she died like on august 6th mm -hmm. or 8th or something like that so but she wrote bobby is gentle he listens to me he's nicer than john bobby says he loves me and wants to marry me and i love him john has a call bobby called so the week before her death, Marilyn made, you know, the diary entry that says, Frank invited me to the lodge. He said it will be fun. 
He never, he said never to mention Sam at the lodge. He's mafia. And then the next entry was kind of, you know, she was kind of confused. It says, Frank, Peter, and others were there. Frank said, I can't keep my fucking mouth shut. He told me to get out. I don't know why he's treating me this, this way. What happened to me? I was drunk. I don't remember. Did I have sex? So she's no idea she what happened. She doesn't know what happened. And then what was really funny is that Frank Sinatra, in interviews much later in his life and all through his life, he just talks about his love for Marilyn and how she was just this wonderful person and that their relationship was never sexual. It was always platonic, but that he just loved her so much. But then he potentially allows this to happen to her. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what his circumstances were, but last I checked, you don't do that shit to people that you quote unquote love. He might not have had any control over the situation either, though. Right. No, I don't mean that excuses no, it, no, no, but, yeah. you know, when the mafia is involved, you don't necessarily have... Right. Total control over a situation. So, and then later in her, her diary entries became angrier. They're not calling me back. Bob and John use me. I told Peter they're ignoring me and I'm not going to stand for it. I'm going to tell everyone about us. And then, uh, after, um, she said after a phone call to her occasional lover, Jose Bolanos, I told Jose, <laughs> I'm going to tell the world about them. They use me and I'm not a whore. Jose said, don't tell anybody about this. It's dangerous. And it was. He's not wrong. Right. So, Roth Miller continued to go through all of these things. Um, he uncovered rumors that Marilyn had an abortion mid-July 1962 on Bobby Kennedy's orders. But the precise sequence of events um, that ended in her death were still unclear. But they did know that, you know, Bobby Kennedy was far from the mild-tempered bookish politician, that he really had, like, a short fuse. He was known as a groper in his, like, circles. And then um, when he was in college, he got into a fight with another student, and um, they had to pry him off this guy's neck, and everyone thought that he was really going to kill him. Hmm. And this isn't the first time that a Kennedy has killed someone, a woman. Look it up. It's all there. Um <laughs> So anyway, it wasn't until uh, Saturday in 1982 when Roth Miller happened to be at Hugh Hefner's Playboy Mansion in Holmby Hills, L.A. with his wife, girlfriend. He was with his, his significant other and somebody else, and he was, they were like touring the mansion. And when he was touring the mansion, he happened to look inside this room where there was a TV blaring and he saw none other than Peter Lawford Hmm. who was drunk and slumped in a chair and he couldn't ask him anything then and there. So he just gave him his business card and on the back of it, it said, call me. And eventually he did. But, um, it was like a week later, but he Lawford was convinced that Roth Miller was the CIA and just (laughs) did not trust him at all. And probably, well, you know, for good fucking reason. I can't imagine that guy's going to trust anybody at this point. No, not at all. Especially after you hear the story. Okay. So, Rock Miller um, said that he was investigating the death of Marilyn, and he reassured the actor that he was not wearing a wire or a recording, a de- recording device. Um, and, you know, he eventually convinced him that he was not CIA. So at first, Lawford gave him the official version of the story that's been told for, you know, the past, like, 20 years. You know, we've already kind of gone over that. Um, but then he, Lawford claimed he called emergency services when they arrived at her home in Brentwood. She was already dead. And then Rothmiller was like, that's not what happened. 
And when uh, he he also added that he knew the truth, and he said he knew the truth because the LAPD had had bugged his home. Like he was bluffing. Like he didn't really know any of those facts, mm-hmm. but it worked. So then Lawford opened up. He started with the events at Sinatra's lodge party. So the lodge is part of Castino Resort, owned by Sinatra and the mob, as already mentioned. And it was on the border of Nevada and California at Lake Tahoe. And then Marilyn flew there the last weekend in July on the singer's private jet. My husband is messaging me, which is, if you can't hear it, you the can now. best theme song ever. His ringtone is the X-Files, because <laughs> I can't even read that text out loud. <laughs> All right. I love it. Okay. So. See, we're just real people trying to make it through the day. Yeah, real people <laughs> with real lives and real husbands. Yes, they're not imaginary. We're not made up on the podcast interweb somewhere. We're definitely not Stepford Wives. Oh, goodness. Um, Okay, so he said that uh, Marilyn flew there the last weekend in July on the singer's private jet. Lawford was present, but he kept his distance, he said. Um, Following a row with Sinatra, he saw the singer plying Marilyn with alcohol, and he kind of guessed what was about to happen. She was carried semi-conscious into a back room where she was raped by Giancana, and then she was pawned and abused by a group of men and women. Pictures were taken for potential blackmail, and some of them even featured her with prostitutes. So when Marilyn eventually woke up, um, Sinatra like kind of threw her out in public, warning her not to say anything about her affairs with the Kennedys. Then she was left to sleep off the ordeal and then sent home the following day. But, you know, all the threats of sexual violence and blackmail wasn't going to silence her, and it actually only made Marilyn angrier, as we've already gone through. Um, So according to Lawford, Bobby Kennedy decided to pay Marilyn a visit himself, and on Saturday, August 4th, he flew to L.A., where Lawford met him. He phoned the actress from Lawford's beach house in Santa Monica, and the two men drove to her home. When Kennedy ordered her to hand over her diary, she lost her temper and started waving a kitchen knife around, which is the incident that I think Eunice Murray kind of mentioned. Yeah, That right. this happened and people had to intervene. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kennedy was steered out of the house. So that has to be true because there are two people who were present and which totally says Bobby Kennedy's lying. He was fucking there. He was there. He was definitely there. So, okay, not definitely, but... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I believe. Yes. <laughs> so when they returned that evening, uh, they said that Marilyn seemed kind of hazy, like she was under the influence of drink or drugs, but she was not intoxicated. And then once again, the scene became heated. Um, the, she started yelling, what do I want? What do I want? I don't want to be treated like a fucking whore. And then Kennedy shook his fist in her face. She slapped it away. And then he seized her by the wrist, swore in her face. She struggled. She struggled free to slap him. And then this is where the kind of row, like, happened. Like, he kind of had her pinned up against stuff. So that's probably where her bruises Bruises, came from. yep. And then while Kennedy searched for the, the diary, Lawford sat with Monroe on the couch um, trying to calm her. Um, and then, you know, they started arguing again. And then Kennedy was upending like drawers, searching for the book, and Marilyn was screaming at him to leave. And he kept threatening her and alternatively warning her to shut your mouth and then promising to pay her off. So eventually Kennedy went into the kitchen 
and pretending to like you know things kind of calmed down Lawford sat by Marilyn and was like ple- she was pleading him to leave uh, before the you know the neighbors were called Kennedy so Lawford went into the kitchen and Kennedy was stirring a glass of water with a spoon um, he appeared to be pouring something in it and when Lawford asked what he was doing Kennedy snapped nothing but at this point you know Marilyn's so upset she's weeping she's crying in her hands the two men went back to the room and Kennedy kind of shoved his glass in her face and said drink this you'll feel better Excuse me again. Jack Daniels and Coke. <laughs> the things you do to me. Assuming uh, the water was dosed with some sort of sedative, you know, to kind of calm her down so they could continue to search for this diary, um, Lawford encouraged her to drink. So she took a sip. She remarked that it tasted unpleasant. And then Kennedy was like, just finish it. So she drained the glass. Then she laid back. And then she got quiet. And at this point, the men did search the house and they didn't find the diary. I don't know what this fucking diary was and that they couldn't find it. But right, because somebody, did. the police found it, yeah. so. So it was somewhere. Um, and then they went back to the living room and Marilyn hadn't moved. She was leaning back with her head tilted back, uh, like, you know, just tilted back and appeared to be sleeping. So Kennedy shook her. Um, she was groggy and obviously drugged and, you know, she kind of stirred, but her voice was a whisper. Anything that she was saying was slurred and unintelligible. Kennedy said her name a couple times, but then she seemed to pass out, and then she didn't respond. So Lawford asked Kennedy, what did you give her? And Kennedy just stared at her. He then turned to Lawford. He didn't say anything. And then uh, Lawford said at that point she wasn't showing any signs of life. Her complexion was turning, and he's like, she's not breathing. What do we do? And Kennedy just said, leave her. So they went to the door, and they were confronted by two men. And at first, Lawford thought that they... It was the neighbors because he realized that they, you know, they were just wearing regular clothes, but they were either detectives or secret service agents who were just mm-hmm. dressed in regular clothes. Um, so they pushed by these guys and Lawford was like, who are they? And uh, they were scurrying into the back of the car and Kennedy didn't reply. And Lawford said, you know, like he, he thought that she was dead. And when he looked back, these two men were going to the house and they closed the door behind them. They were cleaners. They, yeah. They, and they're the ones that probably stripped her down mm-hmm. or in her bed, staged it to make it look like um, she had committed suicide. Because her uh, therapist, psychiatrist, whatever, had, you know, prescribed to her lots of different medications sure. to like help her sleep to help her calm down um so uh and then he he also cooperates that um dr franklin detective not doctor detective lynn franklin um had pulled them over so he mm. said that, you know they were speeding they had actually gotten pulled over um and they were trying to get to the airport but they made it look like he was going to the beverly hills hotel which he checked into and i guess there's records of that hmm. um that are you know of course covered up um anyway so they were actually going in the wrong direction and then you know they uh so let's see i'm kind of skipping ahead of like a lot of the stuff that i typed because i've already kind of gone over it <laughs> anyway so that's what ha- so like that story about the police officer pulling him over and seeing that Bobby Kennedy was in the back of the car was correct. I think the most interesting thing is how a lot of the stories that you've heard along the way in the beginning are kind of corroborated by this whole thing, which is you right. know the interesting part. Like there is truth involved. I have the best ringtones. 
Okay, I don't know. I don't know who lives in Philly, so stop calling me. Um. Anyway, Sir. So, uh, uh, Detective Franklin, who was one of the Beverly Hills Police most de decorated officers, he recounted this night in one of his books. Um, and then this Franklin also, he attempted two attempts on his life. So people tried to kill him. Oh, wow. Because he saw something he obviously wasn't. Right. And then for the rest of his life, Bobby Kennedy denied that he'd been in L.A. on the night of Marilyn Monroe. And then at 9 a.m., Sunday, August 5th. He was not far away, just 310 miles, and was at Sunday Mass in a church near San Francisco with his wife. So the suspicion here is that the reason why they waited so long to call the police is because they wanted to give Bobby Kennedy time to get the fuck out. Right, to get out of town. So right. that there was definitely no chance that he was there and someone saw him somewhere else because if it happened later... Right. Yeah. But there, there was so many involved in, like, uh, police... All of the police knew that he was there because, I mean, the fucking general secretary of the United States doesn't land in a city and people don't know about it. Right. I mean, maybe it, maybe they do. I don't know. No, and it's not like the Kennedys were a low-profile family. Right. Like, you know, some people may not pay attention, but Bobby Kennedy was, I mean, almost as, not at this point, but he was pretty popular. Like, he wasn't as popular as Jack, but people didn't just talk about them as, as president and attorney general. They talked about them as, you know, the Camelot family, the whole Kennedy right. compound, the whole the whole thing, you know, yeah. Kenny Bunkport. And, and so I think that, like, people would definitely know that. that he was there. They're the, like, quote-unquote all-American family. Right. Yeah where all the stereotypes of rich white Americans definitely came from at some point. They're the Tudors. Right. Of and America. They both got <laughs> killed, so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, let's see. So, back in Brent, like, uh, LAPD searched and found the diary, apparently. They disposed of the glass that Kennedy gave Marilyn, and then her naked body was posed for photographs, both with the phone in her hand and then without the phone in her hand to kind of go with all these stories that she was making phone calls and that she called Peter Lawson and, you know, kind of faded away. And, yeah. Well, and if she, they wanted to prove she was making phone calls, why would they get rid of the phone, like, the phone? Like, uh, it's so ridiculous. Um, so, the... The prints that were released to the press showed her face down, holding the receiver, though the post-mortem result, post results showed that her corpse lay on its back for some time immediately after death. Uh, the post-mortem autopsy showed the sedatives, nebutal, and chloral hydrate were found in her body, but Roth Miller believes that Bobby Kennedy gave her a drink that contained military-grade lethal poison, probably supplied to him by the CIA. Um, and the substance toxicology at the time was too primitive to trace it. But obviously, I think uh, that must have been in her system. Mm -hmm. Tunic, like, part of it was in her system, and maybe that's what he gave her. Right. Yeah. Because uh, else, why else? All I know is CSI would be really freaking mad at these people with all of this, you know, lost evidence, lost body parts, non-testing. So, Come on, CSI. During this, Go back in time. Fix this. Found a, it was two filing cabinets, two locked filing cabinets that also had safes in them that belonged to Marilyn Monroe that hmm. somehow got extracted from her house. Don't know how. Don't know why. Maybe that's where the diary was. Maybe. I don't know. Because they showed up in a house in L.A. and the guy was like, I don't know who lives here. I don't know whose <laughs> house this is. 
but this is what they gave me. This is what was in it. And it's just like things like, you know, she bought like a Chanel purse and mm -hmm. she bought this. And it's a lot of receipts, but anyway. Um, so Peter Lawford eventually died in 1984 and uh, Roth Miller quotes, during my years of an interviewing victims and interrogating suspects, I had only seen this type of response a few times. <clears throat> it was clear he had been carrying the burden of guilt for many years and in all likelihood this guilt had destroyed his career and sadly him as a human being. So he believes him. Yeah. And I kind of do too. <laughs> I do too. I mean, because he really didn't gain anything from any of it. His whole, like, I mean, have we heard of him? Have we really? No. I mean, come on. You know, we all yeah. know who Marilyn is, but, you know, so like it did kind of destroy his life. Yeah. So uh, in the intelligence archives, he had found 70 faded Xerox copies of pages from Marilyn Monroe's diary. Um, which, you know, Peter Lawford said that him and Bobby Kennedy were desperate to find and that they couldn't find mm -hmm. them. Um, the diary contained entries for 1962, but not all the pages had been dated. Um, and some of the entries included details of her sexual relations with JFK as well as Robert Kennedy uh, and the information they told her during these, you know, intimate moments. Right. Um, so, go ahead. Which, seriously, you're going to tell, like, I mean, come on. That's the craziest thing to me. You know, like, have the affair, but why are you spilling state secrets to someone who's right. not just some, you Lizzie. know, she's a famous Hollywood actress. She's more famous like, than you at this point. Come and on. Like, that's yeah. it's, it crazy. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Why would you do that? Like, they're just, they're, I mean, men. They clearly think too much. And if they men. wouldn't have done that then it probably wouldn't have been so, you know, critical to shut her up. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think Cause if, she just didn't keep a diary. Yeah. I mean, the affair thing, I mean, that's pretty, you know, whatever. It was an affair. Right. I don't know. It was a different standard about that. I mean, for some people, it would have been a big deal. But, I mean, they could have easily shushed her on that. And it would have been one thing. But, you know, the yeah. other stuff, you got to be careful because, you know, also. secret. Yeah, and Jay and Jay Edgar's watching, man. You know, Hoover was <laughs> on it. Is watching you. Right. So some of the things that her diary contained, I'm just going to go through a couple of them. It was that uh, the president and I made love last night for the first time. He's wonderful and kind. Today he sent me two dozen roses and chocolates. I can't do a Marilyn Monroe accent, so I'm not even going to attempt that <laughs> shit. Um, <laughs> So she noted that Kennedy had suffered pain, and at least once she mentioned helping him remove a back brace before they had sex. She was disappointed that they never, that they engaged in minimal physical foreplay, if any, before they had sex, and then it was over. She wrote, we just kiss and have sex. I wish it was more, but it's not. John just lies there, and I get on top of him to make love. John is a selfish lover. That's my Marilyn impression. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Isn't like, what do you expect? Like... <laughs> This guy probably doesn't even know what cunnilingus is. Um, so Robert Kennedy and Marilyn first had sex while Bobby was in Los Angeles at the Lawfords because this is where all the hooking up happened. Legit. Sex party, right. everything. Bobby and I made love at Peter's. He wants to see me again. This is our secret. In another entry, Marilyn confided that Bobby is gentle. He listens to me. He's nicer than John. I already said this part. Bobby said he loves me and wants to marry me. I love him. And then, you know, she starts to get mad, and she's like, they're using me. I told Peter they're ignoring me, and I'm not going to stand for it, and I'm going to tell everybody about us. 
And then, you know, her last entry was, Peter and Robert will come tomorrow. I don't know if he will. Um, and then Roth Miller suggests that undercover cops actually found um, the diary when they were staging it to look like a suicide. Mm. So, um, so Captain James Hamilton was the commander officer of CID. He was one of the two officers who arrived as Bobby and Peter were leaving the house. Um, it's suspected that he found the diary, made Xerox copies of it, put those in the files because he knew that um, if Kennedy got a hold of him, he would destroy it. So, um, and they, they were all friends with the Kennedys. So I think they kind of kept half of it to have dirt on the Kennedys. And mm -hmm. they, you know, just anyway. So here's kind of my quick, you know, summary synopsis and like, you know, my take on the whole thing. So Marilyn's issues with depression and pills, and it's no secret that she had problems with drug and alcohol. And then it's not a secret that there were points during her career where she, where she would become completely unraveled. And she was actually committed to a, a psych ward that she went to under, um, she thought she was just going there for rest. And she actually ended up being committed and put in a padded room. And it was Joe DiMaggio who eventually came to get her because nobody else would help her. And that's just crazy. All because, I mean, she went through how many marriages. Yeah. She had like a handful of Horrible life. Right. I mean, growing up, everything. Yeah. So it I sounds mean, like Joe really loved her. I think he did. Yeah. Um, so, but it's important to note that at the time she died, she was not depressed. She was upset about the Kennedy mm -hmm. affairs, um, and they, and that another thing that has come out because now the psychiatrist that uh, she was seeing at the time has died and the right. guy who he spoke to made a promise that he'd never discuss it. Mm -hmm. Now that he's dead, he's like, okay, I'll tell you some of the things. And, um, you can listen to some of the interviews that are online, but Marilyn was not depressed. She just, she was fine. Um, she knew like maybe some things weren't great. Um, so and at the time she pulled off something that no other actress was able to do. So through negotiations with her movie studio, which was Fox, uh, she was able to land herself a contract for $1 million. So I was going to mention this and I was going to, I didn't want to like yeah, interject it, but at one point they were talking about paying her off. I'm like, really? You're going to pay her off? She, she was doing well for herself. Yeah. Her career was taking off and I had known that she had actually, you know, had, bartered a, a really good deal for a woman in that time yeah. you know which is super impressive because hollywood was still definitely a man's world and, yeah. and at this you point know in time, she, it's like, like let's just pay her off you know like it seemed like at this time she was really just like you know what i'm fucking fed up with this shit mm -hmm. i'm 36 years old this is not how i want my life and she was like a woman who was about to fucking take charge and she right. was going to be the boss of her own she life she was finally going to take charge of her life and that's why she was kicking all those people out so she right. could be in charge of her own life because you know they were controlling her right i and, mean and they were connected to the kennedys and obviously that wasn't going well so she's like well you know fuck you and fuck you and fuck one you. of your psychiatrists keeps like prescribing the pills that are enhance like enhancing yeah. your addiction not really helpful so then she you know bought the house that she was uh found dead in which i believe was on helen helen drive helena drive it was a really cute house it was quite modest for somebody who you know had that much money right. but she'd been renovating it she was buying furnishings she had been like to work on like, she was talking to me about landscaping you know this was all oh my god i gotta turn my phone off i'm really sorry this is ridiculous 
Okay. My husband's just messaging me these random things about the size of our kid's head. I'm like, I don't even understand. <laughs> so. <laughs> like, I don't. Does he have the tape measure out? I gotta know. I think, I think the gist of it was this kid's head is so big. How did you ever get that out of it? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, just as, fucking barely. <laughs> like, that's as all moms relate. Yeah, just barely. So, and then there was, you know, the the reengagement to Joe DiMaggio, and I already said, you know, she had bought her wedding dress. They had set a wedding date, and possibly the press conference that she had scheduled for that following Monday was probably to announce the fact that her and Joe DiMaggio were going to get married. Right. And because that's, and maybe it's not, these aren't things that happen now, but back then, if you were a celebrity in Hollywood, literally anything that you did, there was a press conference for every divorce, every marriage, every movie. Mm -hmm. You held a press conference because you wanted, I guess, the publicity for it. So that could have been possibly what it was for, and all of this was just like a huge miscommunication, although she was mad, but anyway. So, and then the tapes made by her psychiatrist, Dr. Greenson, was, were submitted as proof to her state of mind at the time just before death, and like I said, they showed a woman who's determined and excited about her future. Um, the tapes also note that Marilyn, she says that she was trying to get a hold of JFK because she wanted to break things off with Bobby, but she didn't have the courage to do it. And her psychiatrist has a sealed box currently in UCLA. And the box has a list of things that all pertain to Marilyn Monroe. Hmm. Nobody knows the specifics because it's a sealed box. So in 2039 is when we can finally open that box. And we can finally go through all of the stuff so in like 20 years <laughs> like i guess it's a little longer than 20 oh my years gosh we, that's crazy yeah just open the damn thing i i don't know how the sealment works i'm <laughs> sure there's some sort yeah. of you know weird mechanism and why or no it? like it's probably some sort of binding contract with like where it's stored like you can't open it like, till this 20, date why 2039 i don't know what kind of date is that so anyway so Hopefully we can then add more details that will lead us further to the truth of the death of Marilyn Monroe because the story we have been given thus far, other than what I just told you about Roth Miller, I don't believe is the truth. And the truth is out there. <laughs> Which is so perfect. <laughs> the ringtone, like so much X-Files going. Why didn't the X-Files do a Marilyn Monroe episode? For real? No, they they didn't. I've watched every episode hundred times. I love the Christmas the episode. I love that one. And I think, I don't know what I was doing the other day, but I was doing something and I'm like, oh, that's a really good episode. I think I want to watch that one again. <sighs> I do. I love that yeah. episode. So, so good. good. Anyway, that's my Marilyn Monroe conspiracy story. And I think that the story that Lawford told was, I think that's what happened to her. Like, I have never, ever, ever, ever since I've known about Marilyn Monroe's death ever thought that it was a suicide. Ever. Yeah, I, and I think that that was really common. Like people covered things up, especially in Hollywood, you know, yeah. and it, um, and obviously involving the Kennedys and even more and the mafia, you yeah. know. I mean, it's all tied together, and of course things were covered up. So I don't think a lot of people really go, "Oh yeah, she definitely did." Yeah. I mean, her issues though with drugs and alcohol is part of the problem because it always taints it. Where you can go, but you know. But maybe she did it by accident. She didn't really mean. Mean to, to exactly. But but yeah. And then my rebuttal for that is, well, the levels. Right. No, the levels are out of control. Like I said, right. CSI needs to go back in time. Like, so they reopened this case. 
And then the same thing happens. Oh, we don't have enough evidence. There's nothing here mm-hmm. later. Yeah. Because everything has been so covered up or just destroyed. Destroyed. Yeah. How would you be able to even look back into it? And Joe DiMaggio was convinced that the Kennedys killed her. Yeah. Um, he was quoted as saying something, and I'm just paraphrasing that, um, you know, the Kennedys have done it again. You know, those Kennedys, they're a bunch of lady killers. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so for those of you who don't know, Joe DiMaggio was a really famous baseball player for the New York Yankees at the time. And during a World Series event, Robert Kennedy was there, and this was after Marilyn had died, and he was there just kind of like shaking everybody's hands. He refused to shake Bobby Kennedy's hand. Hey. Because I would. he's like, fuck you, you killed my fiance, <laughs> and you got away with it, you piece of shit. Basically. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And then another thing that came up on Instagram, which I don't know why, I don't follow any of the Kennedys. It was their family photo, the four, I guess the 4th of July, they all get together and they're Richie, hoity toity, like Hamptons bullshit, and they take a huge family photo, and they're a huge, like, they're a huge family. Oh, uh, yeah. They're a huge, huge family. And it's just, so Bobby Kennedy had, you know, a bunch of kids that were all very young when all this was happening. And it was one of his daughters that, you know, posted the photo. And I'm like, I wonder what her thoughts are about her father's affair with Marilyn and possibly that he had something to do with her demise, that kind of thing. Well, it's hard to say in a family like that, you're getting fed a certain story, right? I mean, and also... I mean, not to say that this isn't true, but when you are famous in the way that the Kennedys are, there's also a lot of lies told about you, right? You know, I'm not saying that I think this is a lie, but I'm sure she has heard all kinds of interesting things about her family, right? You know, because all of it is a freaking conspiracy when you turn it back on the Kennedys. Look at the murders. Look at everything that happened to the Kennedys. Like, you know, everything about them turns into some sort of crazy conspiracy so it's not unfathomable for her to be like yeah that's just another so speaking of this thing true crime thing and uh when i was in the third grade i lived with my grandmother who was obsessed with the kennedys and the kennedy assassination because it happened you know in her timeline um she had a book and in the book there were autopsy photos of JFK, which literally showed everything. And for some reason, I was like, well, this is amazing. Oh, I've seen those. <laughs> I took them to school. Oh, no. In the third grade. And I was showing them to all of my friends who I think were probably way more sheltered than me. We're not looking at, you know, you know, somebody's, you know, poor head only half being there. And I got in trouble. If I'm not careful, that's going to be Zoe in third grade. So. <laughs> and, like, the teacher was like, listen... It's okay that you look at these things, but please don't bring this back. Right. And Except it's like, going to be the Black it's Dahlia. My grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my story about Marilyn Monroe. Love it. Okay, so time for my story today. Um, it is the Bath School Massacre. Yeah. So before we get started, I just need to say that I've been doing research on different things I want to talk about. And. I have this conversation with people a lot because I do kind of obsess over true crime and everyone's like, well, we live in such a crazy world today and it's so crazy. And, you know, and I am a firm believer and people can argue with me and it's fine, but I am a firm believer that the world is just as crazy today as it was before. And the reason we think it's crazier today is media. You know, we are bombarded. Think about people... 
20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, unless it was a famous thing, you know, it happened in your local paper, maybe, but you didn't hear about what, you know, who got murdered three towns over probably, Mm -hmm. or, you know, even the state over. Um, So I have always had this mindset. And as I'm researching things, I came across this. And I agree. I think that I don't think anything is crazier. If anything, I think the more technology we get, the less crazy things get because you can't get away with anything now. Right. Like, and you, and if you listen to true crime as much as I do, most of the stories aren't modern. Mm-mm. A lot of the stories took place a long time I mean, ago. Look at the Ted Bundy case, for example. Right. I mean, so that's just, yeah. So that's kind of where I started with this. So I came across this case because it's really. <laughs> my husband's like, "You're really gonna do this?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm in because <laughs> it's." Like, I'm fucking doing it. <laughs> um. So. My husband is a public school teacher, so I'm going to do the whole trigger warning thing. This is a ba- this is about a school massacre that happened at a school. I am not getting into gory details about anything like that. I'm just going to tell you the story, um, and it's mostly about the guy who did it, which is the part of the story that I think is the most interesting. But you know, if this is something you've experienced or you feel you know connected to in any way, and you don't want to listen, I completely understand. So. We all know about school shootings, right? You know, we can all name a school. We It's covered by the media. You know, I distinctly remember Columbine. I was pretty young when it happened. Like, I remember these things. We all do. Um, and we've kind of decided this is a modern phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Now, this story doesn't take place quite in the same way as the modern school shootings. But it just shows that, you know, places, uh, public places like schools tend to be targets for this type of violence. So, um, so this case is actually pretty kind of forgotten you know it's not one of those cases that people talk about a lot um it happened in 1927 wow so in bath township michigan uh it's a rural village about 300 people live there um it's 10 miles from lansing which is the capital but it's mostly a small farming community um so it's pretty small and the bath consolidated school was built um five years earlier like five years before the incident um before that they had a bunch of one-room schoolhouses all over the place and this school was built and this was kind of a you know a big thing to build one school where all the different school or students from the region could come to one place Mm -hmm. so it was this big school they built like 314 students attended the school so that's pretty walk 10 miles uphill in the snow right i'm sure they all did of course and you know so it's a pretty big school it's got a pretty big population for that time because there were still a lot of one-room schools So that year, May 18th, was the last day of classes um, for students. And at 8.45 that morning, the north wing of the three-story structure exploded with such force that it could be heard from miles away. People reported hearing it all over the Michigan area. Um, One of the, I have a quote from someone. It said, we knew it came from Bath, but we didn't know what what it was or anything. So we jumped in the old car and drove as fast as we could to see what it was. This was from Irene Dunham. She told the Lansing State Journal this. Um, Irene is the oldest living survivor. She was 19 at the time of the bombing. And she was a senior about to finish her last year of school, but she stayed home sick that day due to a sore throat. So um, this was reported from Smithsonian Magazine. So anyway, so after the initial explosion, the community rushes in to help, right? They come in, they get ropes, they get, you know, to pull the collapsed roof to try and get the teachers and students out. And as that's all happening, half an hour into this, um, a gentleman pulls up in his truck. 
He's a member of the school board. His name is Andrew Kehoe. He drives up to the site. He steps out of his truck. He gets his rifle out and oh, fires his rifle at the truck. And it turns out his truck is filled with diamond, the, oh, wow, dynamite and shrapnel. The oh, second no. explosion kills the school superintendent, several bystanders, and Kehoe himself. So, like I said earlier, I'm not going into any details about the scene or anything like that. Because, I mean, you can imagine yeah, like... The whole thing was crazy. We're not getting into that. I'm a mom. I don't need to think about that either. All right. So, but I will tell you, it took to like five or six that night for them to clear the building. You know, people came from all over waiting to see like who they got out. Um, when it was all said and done, 36 children were killed. Oh, two teachers were found dead and 58 people were injured. So this isn't even the end of the story, though. So as things unfold, investigators go to this guy's farm because clearly, you know, it's pretty obvious who did it yeah, <laughs> at this point, yeah. right? And they find that it's been burned to the ground. His wife's body is in ashes with her skull crushed. Oh and the God. bodies of two of his horses are found on the farm, along with a sign attached to the property fence that read, Criminals are made, not born. Wh- okay. <laughs> Okay. So we're Im- listening. Investigators believe that he killed his wife, who'd been ill with tuberculosis, out of fear that she would divulge information about his attack. Like they, th- yeah. they think that he thought that she was going to tell people because yeah. he clearly had planned this for quite some time. Um, also, you know, I think at this point he's kind of just you know lost it, right? I think maybe he just kind of wanted to, you know, family annihilator, burn it all down. Except you know he wasn't Did happy he with just kids? no. Wasn't happy with just taking down his own family. I had to take down, you know, everyone's family. So before we jump into the why, I have to add one more thing about how bad this attack could have been. So as they're clearing the area, there are hundreds of pounds of explosives that never went off. Were they supposed to? Yes. They found another 500 pounds of unexploded dynamite rigged up from the school's basement, along with a container of gasoline that had been placed there, and they think it's because if the explosives didn't work, it was to catch the place on fire. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, obviously he's been planning this, as I said before, for a long time. Like, this was not something that happened. He didn't show up one day, which is why I said it's very different than a lot of modern school incidents. He didn't show up one day and do this. This was something he planned. Um, and I'll get into it in a minute, but like they think he planned this over a year. Well, you which, get that much into a school and not so, be seen. Right. And I will tell you a little bit more about that. But so like what happened to drive this guy to this point? Because this is very. To make him a criminal, quote unquote. Right. Right. So let's. All right. <laughs> and, you know, we ask ourselves this all the time. What makes people do this crazy stuff, you know? And. I don't have an answer, obviously, but let me just tell you about this guy. Okay. So he studied electrical engineering at Michigan state, uh, Michigan state college in East Lansing. And he moved to St. Louis for a while. He worked as an electrician for several years. At some point he did, he suffered a head injury and he had a fall and he came, um, he was in a coma for a couple weeks. Right. And I personally think that maybe this affects you know, the things that come after that, you know, this is 1920. Well, this is way before 1927. Actually, this is, you know, um, like probably 10 or 15 years before that. Jared There's, and I were just talking about this, about how head trauma, head trauma. People. Yeah. It changes yeah. people. Right. So, you know, um, so he goes back home to the farm 
where his dad lives. He goes back home, um, back to Michigan. And while he's there, his mother dies. And his father remarries um, a younger woman who was a widow. Her name was Frances Wilder. Um, His father and her have a daughter together. And there's real, there's no real information, but it sounds like he wasn't happy about this. There's like reports that he killed the the, the cat at some point, you know, the the little girl's cat. But more importantly, that's not even, that's like minor because on September 17th, 1911, his stepmother attempted to light the family's oil stove and it exploded and set her on fire. And he came in and threw a bucket of water on her and the fire's oil base. So of course that made it worse. And she was burned extensively and she died the next day from her injuries. And this is a trained, you know, college educated man. <laughs> like, you know, he, oh my gosh. he knew that, he, that this was going to, yeah, you don't throw water. on he Anyway, he did it on purpose. So everyone really do like, everyone really thinks that he did it, you know, yeah. like the family, a lot of people think. So at this point, um, a year later, he marries this woman named Ellen Nellie Price. And he stays with her at the family farm for another seven years before they move into their own farm outside of this town of Bath. So a lot of people remember him differently. Some say he was quick to volunteer and help out, while others describe him as being impatient, um, just always disagreeable. Um, It's reported that he had shot and killed a neighbor's dog because either the dog barked too much or he was burying bones too close to his property i mean seriously and then another neighbor reported that he beat one of his horses to death because it did not perform to his expectations so this right here should be the first clue that this guy needs to you know get some serious help because these are this is a grown grown man this isn't the act of a child or you know anyway i digress so In 1924, he was elected as a trustee to the school board for three years and treasurer for one. Who only knows why. So. Slim pickings. And he had this reputation for frugality. He argued strongly for lower taxes. And obviously they raised taxes to build this new school, right? Because that was the whole thing. Um, So he's kind of in the middle of all that. Um, He was thought to be difficult to work with often voting against other things. Um, He wanted his own way. He wanted to argue. They even said sometimes he would argue about necessary expenses, things that obviously they needed to buy. And he would just like, he wanted to argue to argue basically, you know, we all know people like that. And mostly he just complained the whole time that he was paying too much in taxes, you know? So to explain it a little bit, because I kind of wanted to get an understanding of what this looks like in 1922 when we're talking about when they raised the taxes and honestly it sounds so meager in amounts but just you know take yourself back a minute right so um the school tax was twelve dollars and 26 cents on a thousand dollar valuation um kehoe's farm was valued at ten thousand dollars so in 1923 the school board raised the tax to 1880 per thousand dollar valuation and in 1926, the taxes went up to 1980. This meant the Kehoe's tax liability went from $122.60 in 1922 to $198 in 1926. Okay. Okay. 
I just, you know, it was more for me. I had to, like, I had to, because, no, 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 you know, I had to figure it out. So, you were like, okay, this on, like, a thousand dollars in my head. I'm like, okay, so multiply this. <laughs> I wasn't going to make you do the math on your this. own. Yeah, no, I, I, I got it. I hate <laughs> no, math, so yeah, no, it's ditto. fine. Ditto. So, in June 1926, um, Kehoe was notified that the widow of his wife's uncle, who held the mortgage on the property, was going to begin foreclosure proceedings. Okay. And so following the disaster, the sheriff um, who had served the floor clo- the foreclosure notice reported that Kehoe muttered, if it hadn't been for that $300 school tax, I might have paid off this mortgage. And Mrs. Price, the mortgage holder, also reported that he told her, if I can't live in that house, no one else will, when oh. she told him about the foreclosure. So, you know, we know he's kind of an ass, mm-hmm. and all of these financial things are starting to come in. So, oddly, though, in 1925, he was appointed to fill a temporary... I don't know why, because he's so <laughs> disagreeable to work with, but he was to fill a temporary position as the town clerk. So he ran for the actual election in 26 and lost. And people think that the public rejection, so on top of all the money problems and that public rejection, um, really, you know, upset him. And the foreclosure of the song. Yes, um, his neighbor noted at the time he stopped working on his farm, like he stopped farming altogether. Um, and his neighbor kind of thought he was going to commit suicide because he just kind of like didn't Checked do anything. Out. Right. Yeah. Um, also, his wife, as I mentioned, was chronically ill with tuberculosis, which there was no treatment for at the time. Mm-hmm. So this was also adding to their debt. Right. Yeah. So. All right. So. You know, we have a little history on what's going on with this guy, which obviously is nothing good. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so a lot of breaking points here. So the next question that you have to ask is, how did he pull this off? Because we're talking about like the amount of explosives that went off plus the amount that they found. Right. So um, a Bath School Board member, M.W. Keyes, was quoted by the New York Times saying, I have no doubt that he made his plans last fall in 1926 to blow up the school. He was an experienced electrician, and the board employed him in November to make some repairs on the school lighting system. He had ample opportunity then to plant the explosives and lay the wires for touching it off. So he had free access to the school boarding school uh, school building during the summer of 1926 so um it's also noted that in mid-1926 he was buying a ton of uh pyrotol an incendiary explosive used by farmers during the era for excavation and burning debris and in november of 1926 he drove to lansing and bought two boxes of dynamite at a sporting goods store but dynamite was commonly used on farms, so his purchase of small amounts of explosives at different stores and stuff really didn't raise a lot of suspicion. Except that um, he wasn't farming. Well, yeah, but they, you know, only his neighbors probably knew he right. wasn't farming, okay. right? Sure. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, the guy that worked at the store was probably just like, oh, another farm, you know. He probably yeah. went in and said, I farm, I need some dynamite, right? Give me your money. Also, um, Michigan State investigators found that a bunch of dynamite was stolen from a bridge construction site. And they pretty much think that he took it. So that was kind of, you know, the other place he got it. So he did steal some of it, too. Yeah. Um, So I was thinking to myself, like, how did they not notice the explosives in the school? Right. You know. Did he hide them under lights and shit? When they investigated the part of the school that didn't blow up. The basement. Yeah. They found 
he used like the same kind of pipes you would use for spouting and put it like basically in the ceiling and filled it with dynamite. He was also using like bamboo fishing rods. Yeah. So it was kind of like all hidden around. So this was not just like a slapdash thing. This was not something that was put together. He really thought about this. Yes. Like this was really well intentioned and he had backup plans like the fact that the gasoline didn't actually explode and catch the rest of the building on fire or even happen while they were trying to like evacuate everyone right you know is pretty crazy um he also purchased a gun at that time which again was also pretty common like nobody's really thinking much about it or now so this story did actually get national headlines at the time. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't completely unheard of. It got, you know, the New York Times covered it. Like, cause yeah. this was, this is still the most deadly school um, massacre, massacre or what, like anything yeah. in any, in a yeah. school in, in America, like to this day. Uh, but right after, two days after it, uh, Charles Lindbergh made his famous transatlantic flight aboard this, you know, the spirit of St. Louis. And so the publicity kind of just, yeah you know waned because there was a much more positive story on the horizon and that was kind of what took over so i was kind of interested about what the community did after this and this is actually pretty interesting um the governor just went out asking for donations from townspeople um people from all over the country did donate like they did fund drives um relief money to come like to be brought in um and the school resumed the following fall, like, oh. but not at the school. They were using like community hall, township hall, retail buildings, like people donated space. So all these kids could come back to school in the fall, which I think is pretty cool. And most yeah. of them came back, which is, you know, kind of surprising. Yeah, I'm um, be sending my kid back. Yeah. Um, a, an architect from Lansing um, donated construction plans and you know, the school board approved contracts for the new building that they were going to build um, the following year. But the great thing was a Michigan senator, um, James J. Cousins, presented a personal check to pay for the whole school. Oh, that's of, nice. At the time, $75,000, which in 2020's equivalent is $1,117,385,000. Wow. So, yeah. That's awesome. No. I said that all wrong. $1,117,385. Wow. I was like, I thought that's what you just said. No, not quite. Hmm. Anyway, this is what happens when you tell your story second and you drink a very um, high-octane beer. beer. Uh, This is what makes this podcast So much fun. (laughs) So they did, they got, he donated this money and they built a new school and they named it after him, which is, you know, um, and they actually built it over the damaged portion of the old school. So they reconstructed the whole area and while they were doing it, they kept finding more dynamite. Like they kept finding more dynamite. So the James Cousins Agricultural School was dedicated on August 18th, 1928. Wow. And it stayed there for a really, really long time. Um, the Kehoe farm though, they went in and it plowed the whole thing down and excavated to make sure there wasn't any more dynamite hidden. Was there? No, but like they totally went out there like, all right, let's just double check. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, a a local artist, um, Carlton and angel, angel, 
angle. angle. I'm not even sure. Presented the board Back with this with a statue. Um, it's called a girl with a cat, and colloquially, it's called the girl with a kitten. Um, and there's a museum at the middle school that has a lot of the um, the stuff from the disaster that they've kept and just fo- photos and stuff. And we will put some photos up on the. Um, on social media for everyone to take a look at because there's definitely yeah. some interesting photos that they've they've kept. Um, but that school stayed until 1975. So the one that they wow. the second school was there till 1975, and they you know demolished it eventually. And um, now it's called James Cousins Memorial Park, and it's dedicated to the victims of the massacre. And at the center of the park is the original cupola that was on the top of the um, old school. Yeah. And um, there's a stone marker, you know, like a historical marker, um, and all the names of the victims are there. So it's really cool how this community hasn't forgotten right. about something, you know, not cool because it's horrible, but, like, no, but they haven't sweet. forgotten about it. Like, it's, to this day, you can still go see it, basically. It's admirable. Um, so a gentleman named Harold Schechter... I'm terrible with names today. (laughs) He wrote this book called Maniac, the Basque Disaster and the Birth of the Modern Mass Murderer. And in the book, he he has this quote, and I think it's pretty um, telling about what, you know, I kind of started talking about. The evil visited upon the citizens of Bath was the realization of every nightmare that troubles the sleep of present day Americans. Only now has its significance become clear as as a catastrophe that foreshadowed the terrors of the current age, a horror ahead of its time. Yeah. But, you know, I also think that, like, there were probably a lot of horrors that, we you know. We just don't know about them. Just don't know. So, it, I, I realize, not my most uplifting story, but... Um, I mean, this is a story about true crime and monsters and conspiracies. What's, right. There's nothing uplifting about I this. I know. <laughs> But I really, I really was interested in the whole historical aspect of this and just how insane this was and the amount of planning and, yeah. you know, you think about someone pulling that off and um, it's pretty phenomenal that, like, no one knew what he was doing for a whole year, yeah. like, of planning and having this and whole thing happen. And he just had the frame of mind to want to do that because clearly right. in that entire time, not one point that you're aware of did he like did he stop and like oh maybe i'm not gonna do this yeah maybe i'm not gonna kill all these kids like you know he never talked himself out of it and you know there's no reason like you know he was mad at the school board he's mad at the town he's mad so like i think there's clearly something wrong with this person you know i mean no one just does something like that because they have to pay more taxes you know right like or because they were not voted into something right i still go back to the head injury you know, for me, yeah. that's probably where a lot of this stems from. Um, nobody really talked about it. Maybe the gentleman in his book goes into it a little bit. I don't know. But right. I obviously didn't have time to read the book. So, <laughs> um. <laughs> all right. So that's my story this week. I promise to uh, get something a little meatier for next time. Yeah, but it, it was great, though. And it's not something that is really known. Yeah, I had never heard of it. Yeah. Like, honestly, you'd never heard I of mean, it. I think so. that in and of itself makes it a great, a great retelling tale. I'm trying to be creepy. Mm-hmm. It's not working. Thanks. Like it, yeah. All right. So let's do our very first 
listener story. This is so exciting. So, yes, I know it's a long episode, but like we said, we're going to be off for a week, so break it up. Soak it in, man. Soak it in. (laughs) All right, so this listener story is from Carrie. Hi, Carrie. How you doing? I'm not going to say your last name on here for privacy issues. Thank you. Yes. So, hello. First, let me tell you how much I enjoyed your first podcast. Thank you. It was so much fun, and the stories were engrossing. Very well done. Again, thank you. Thank you. We we love compliments. (laughs) Hair flip. (laughs) You asked for some real-life stories, and I have one from my hometown of Washington, PA. First is the case of Justin Soltis. Just for record, she gave us two stories. We're going to read one today, and we're going to save the second for another episode. I grew up in a trailer park, and yes, all of the stereotypes applied to it. Same girl, same. Right here. Home trailer park trash. Right here. Okay. (laughs) Um, With some exceptions, as my immediate family. We lived in a newer, quote-unquote, good section, but there was also the, quote-unquote, bad set, bad older section, where the real riffraff lived. One One of more notorious families was the Soltis family. There were three kids, Sherry, Justin, and Christine. The girls kind of kept to themselves, and they were not too friendly. But they didn't seem overly mean. Justin, on the other hand, was just kind of terrifying. I rode the bus to school with him, so I saw him just about every day. He just exuded this mean energy and bad vibes. So sometime in 1993 or 94, Justin went to live with his grandfather. Justin was a year younger than me, so he would have been 14 or 15 at the time he went. I can't remember if he changed schools then or just quit going, but I don't remember seeing him at school at the time. So anyway, in June of 94, Justin summoned the police to his grandfather's house saying that intruders had entered the home and beat him and his grandfather, killing the grandfather, and Justin had injuries that consisted with being beaten in the face. Well, the police were not buying it, and Justin confessed rather quickly. In Mm. his confession, he stated that he wanted to access his grandfather's guns for the purpose of killing someone, but his grandfather would not let him. So a struggle ensued, and he pushed his grandfather down the steps, then proceeded to beat him to death with his bare hands when he realized that the fall didn't kill him. Oh, my gosh. To cover up the crime, Justin called his same friend, Nick, spelled Nicholas with a K, Lauk, if you do a background research, but there's not much about him. He died in 2007. Nick agreed to help him with the cover story about the intruder. So Nick punched him in the face to make it look like the intruders beat up Justin. It's a shame because this is a total case of Nick just being pulled by in by Justin. Nick was a nice kid, maybe a little rough around the edges, but he was really sweet, friendly, and just a nice kid despite growing up in bad circumstances. So Justin is eventually convicted of third-degree murder. The, the, the decision to go downstairs, uh, see the, that the grandfather isn't dead, and then beat him until he dies should have been enough to show premeditation. So that's why I think it probably should have been first-degree murder with malice, a forethought. Totally agree. Pretty sure he was tried in as an adult. The details of this case are hard to find except for this one website, which is uh, Uh I haven't searched any academic da- databases, but I can access Westlaw because I'm a Cal U student. Woohoo! I don't know what that means. Maybe there would be something <laughs> there. But wait, of course he appealed it. Trying to get the charges changed to involuntary manslaughter, he argued that he was in fear of his own life because his grandfather was attacking him. And a bunch of other criminal law slash uh, 
prosecutorial violations he supposedly was a victim of, but it was denied. However, I did hear that he got out when he was 21. Inmate searches of currently incarcerated people show that he isn't currently incarcerated in PA and he seems to be living in Pittsburgh. Wow. Yeah. So thank you, Carrie, for that. Thank you for that story. It's really interesting. And her next one is really good, too. But we'll read that on, a, on another episode because this one is probably far long enough and it's getting late and our children are hungry. Yes. We're hungry. We must feed the children. Always feeding the children every night. So, again, thank you for everybody who has liked our podcast, rated it, followed it, listened to it. Um, You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at 4M Podcast. If you have a story, we would love to hear it. We would love to retell it, feature it. Um, Email us at mysterymompodcast at gmail.com. I don't know what else. I'm sure there's a bunch of other clubs. I think that's all. Share. 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 Tell your friends. Share. It's fun. It's tell fun. Your tell your mom. Yeah. Your mom. So like, hey, mom, I got this cool mom podcast. <laughs> mom Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Your moms love you. See you in a week. Good night.